Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Wednesday, June 9th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Very good. Summer heat, first heat wave of the summer over. First time, I think we are around 38, 39 degrees. We're back at a blissful 27. So looking forward to being able to go outside again. Yes. Uh, nice that it's ended for you. We are still in the midst of it here. It is nice and humid in my apartment. Um, I don't know when that is going to end for us, but really making me consider uh, getting one of those standing air conditioning units installed. Um, never had air conditioning growing up, but it's a blessing that I can now afford, uh, at least for one of those smaller units. Um, so it's definitely looking awful tempting right now. <laughs> yeah, living in a studio like small apartment space too as opposed to having to provide air conditioning for an entire house changes it yeah I had air conditioning for like one month of my first year in residence like the only hot month and that was really my only experience with it it's uh doesn't even occur to me as an option yeah my, uh, yeah. take clothes off, go to the lowest part you can and like regular <laughs> ice water application. Yeah. <laughs> I guess if you learn to live that way, I guess in the end you can survive. And it does make me feel like AC is, is truly a blessing, but, uh, I'm not sure how much longer I can last at this rate, hoping for some showers and some wind to come through and, and cool things down here. Uh, but otherwise, Summer itself seems to be climbing towards a crescendo. Things are opening up on Friday here in uh, Ontario. And I know some things are already open there in Quebec as well. Um, The Canadians will be able to cross the border and host uh, their opponent in the next round, which means that things are opening up (laughs) internationally, I guess. Uh, Canada also announced that Travelers today would not have to follow a 14-day quarantine um, once returning from international travel if they are fully vaccinated. And so you know that meant my mother was instantly online looking for flights this fall. Um, So I'm just, I can't wait to travel in a couple months uh, because a lot of us have been sitting inside, not a lot of, not spending a ton of money, a lot of savings building up over the pandemic, if you are lucky enough and fortunate enough to work from home. Um, and so, yeah, ready to go out and, and see the world again after being cooped up in an apartment for 15, 16 months. <laughs> Inflation's coming, baby. <laughs> Sports are reaching a crescendo as well um, along the themes of this summer. It's heating up, thing, the action's heating up. We've got basketball into the second round, we've got hockey into the late second round. Two teams already advancing to the third round, and, and so a couple of game sixes tonight and tomorrow. Uh, of course, we've also got combat corner with combat sports in full swing. Uh, we had that Jake Paul Floyd Mayweather fight last weekend. I don't know if you can truly call that combat, but it happened. Uh, and then a couple of international soccer tournaments, which I'll talk about later on this podcast, that uh, – when those are going, it's truly feels like summer um, because they're some of the best times going 
going through the city and seeing everyone's different allegiances. It really brings out the uh, spirit and uh, nationalism of, of different <laughs> segments of your cities or towns that you live in. And I just think it's so awesome that people have pride for their, their country. Uh, and then, of course, the French Open, which we'll also get to later, is uh, into the semis now, I believe, in the men's and women's. Um, and some excellent tennis lined up for the upcoming weekend. So lots and lots of stuff to talk about. But we will begin on the hard court in Utah, where game one between the Clippers and the Utah Jazz uh, was a tale of two halves. And uh, I can't even remember now who I picked. I think I picked LA. And I think you picked Utah <laughs> based on our last podcast. Um, I put my faith in the two wings, Kawhi and Paul George, uh, and their and and the Clippers' ability to go small. But in this game, they get a poor performance from Paul George, who has been great all playoffs. But of course, the uh, playoff P moniker is coming back to haunt him every time he has a subpar performance, which is fair when you are a guy getting paid the max and expected to produce every single night. And. It was a back-and-forth affair. Utah missed 21 shots in a row at one point in the first quarter and only finished that quarter down six, uh, which was a bad sign for the Clippers. But then on the other side, uh, second half, Utah absolutely on fire. Donovan Mitchell takes over. Uh, I believe he had 42 in this game. Um, And then even then it only ends up being a three point game. We have a Marcus Morris three pointer attempt blocked by Rudy Gobert near the end of the game. Um, it was, it, it definitely signaled the theme of that game that night. And, and it truly, the results of these, this last week has shown me that it still is important to be a top two seed in the NBA because we did have some lower seeds that people were all over. Of course, golden state, if they had made it in, of course, the Lakers, the defending champs, Dallas, everyone was very excited for. We have Denver progressing, um, just and and like a Miami Heat team that everyone was excited to see because of their uh, finals run last year. A lot of lower seeds were getting buzz, uh, but you're one or two in your conference for a reason. It means you've put together a consistently remarkable effort from everyone in your lineup because you're not going to have everyone healthy all the time. Health is a big part of success and Utah and Phoenix uh, had a lot of that and, and Philadelphia as well, minus a, a large Joel and B injury. Um, but there's a reason why they're top two seeds and Utah showed that tonight. Mitchell was fantastic. No Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert looked like he could hang and there are times when Gobert has been exposed on the perimeter, but that is by, usually by lightning quick guards who can really threaten an outside shot and then take him off the dribble. Um, Steph Curry, obviously the main one, uh, but as well, John Morant was using his quickness uh, and his floater game to really expose Gobert in a pick and roll. Whereas when Utah is switching at the top, Kawhi, Paul George, Marcus Morris, whoever it is, that's a little bit bigger wing. They don't necessarily have that same explosiveness and Gobert can hang with them a little bit easier than those smaller, quicker guards. Uh, and so far that, that was something I noticed in this first game. And, and obviously it shows itself on that last play when he can recover for the block on the three pointer. Uh, but I think Gobert is going to actually have a much larger defensive impact on this series than I initially thought. 
because of the Clippers' ability to spread things out and try and pull him away from the rim. Uh, he's gotten he's greatly improved at his perimeter defense, and I think he can recover on some of those rotations. Yeah, I guess they'll try and punish him with uh, Jackson a little, who was great against the Mavericks at times, but hard to get too much consistency over seven games there, do you think, or what do you expect? Yeah, it, it it's a great point that you make. Raji Jackson had been averaging 18 points per game uh, starting in game two against Dallas. And then, of course, they needed him tonight. He fouls out. Uh, and also, it, it like he was averaging 18 points, but when it's not Kawhi, when it's not Paul George, you just are never sure you're going to get that consistent performance from your role guys every night. They're going to need Reggie Jackson to be great, and he definitely is an X factor for if he can run out there with other wings and space the floor and be able to attack uh, when they switch. But this this Utah team, man, they play great team defense. They're able to scramble and recover. All five of the guys on the floor are on a string and, and play really solid help defense and rotational defense. And the Clippers might have to do a little bit more mismatch hunting uh, than they were doing last night. And Kawhi's got to get the ball a ton more. He did not get the ball enough in that fourth quarter. But I don't want to take that away from the other side. We're Donovan Mitchell, man. Uh, it seems like he's taking that step. And Dwayne Wade was in attendance, part owner of the Utah Jazz, giving him some tips from the his courtside seat and cheering him on. And, and Mitchell was simply fantastic. An absolute flamethrower in the third quarter, hit some deep, deep threes, was attacking, splitting uh, double teams when they tried to kind of trap him off of a high screen uh, and breaking through and attacking the rim in his patented way, jumping off two feet, um, using a variety of different moves to finish and or draw fouls. Uh, and I think there's, there's a little bit of that cliche playoff lumps are coming through for him where he's figured out the tempo he wants to play at and he knows late in the game that the ball can go through him and he can make a play because now he's had those series where Utah had to go four or five against Oklahoma city with Paul George and Russell Westbrook a couple years ago. And then uh, in the bubble last year, he had that duel with Jamal Murray and, and Utah certainly had to take their lumps and this team, the number one seed, this is as good a chance they have as any. And, and a lot of that's going to ride on Mitchell. And he seems up to the task, at least in game one. You never want to overreact too much, but it's a great result for Utah to make a statement. Yeah, there's no substitute for experience. We'll move along to the other Western Conference game one. Game two set to go tonight between the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. And this was another statement game by the upper seed. Uh, the game was very close. I think it was 74-72. And then Jokic airballs uh, a three. And Phoenix comes back the other way. Devin Booker with a four-point play on a three-pointer. Falls back to the ground. Does the patented lying down and, and staring down the opponent like when he hit that buzzer beater against the Clippers last year in the bubble, it's an excellent photo. And from there on, the Suns just took over the game, dominated, just ran the Nuggets out of the building. Um, it was one of the first moments in a while where you notice in those games where the crowd slowly gets louder and louder and louder as, as your, their team goes on a run. And then there's just like that one play, a three or a dunk or something. And then the crowd just explodes. And that was the first time I had seen that since sports have come back. 
And it was just truly awesome to see that Phoenix crowd was uh, raucous um, and the Suns get a big, big win. And uh, I think the big story of this one, besides Chris Paul doing the amazing things he's doing at the age of 36 is DeAndre Ayton was a presence for Jokic in that first game, very disciplined, didn't get into foul trouble and he's big and he's got pretty good feet for a guy, his size and was managing to give Jokic some trouble in those one-on-one matchups. Um, and it definitely took away the effectiveness of Jokic uh, to a degree who won the MVP today, by the way, congrats to him. Um, but it just, when Jokic is taken down that half notch, it exposes the weaknesses in this Denver lineup as they're just missing so many start key starters. Uh, it's very different when Devin Booker and Chris Paul are guarding you versus Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. There is a, a defensive difference there. And then you've also got Mikhail Bridges, campaign, uh, Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, all guys who are just higher def- level defenders than Portland could provide. Uh, and Denver is facing a much better defensive team and they struggled to score in game one. And we'll see if that happens again tonight. Yeah. I didn't think Aiton has to be like an all defensive player to swing the series in their favor. He just has to be a better defensive player against the Nuggets, black hole, supernova, whatever you want to call that heliocentric style that just slows it down, makes it less effective and like forces the play to a degree that Denver can't match against guys like Paul Booker. And when Denver, or excuse me, when Phoenix has options, like, oh, you're defending this guy well, we oh, we'll try this, we'll try that. Denver doesn't have that same uh, luxury. So as you said, awarded the MVP today. I wouldn't be surprised if he steals one or two games with some ridiculous like 40 plus, like 15 assist type thing. But uh, seems like the way the series is should go on paper at least. Yeah. All right, we'll transition over to the Eastern Conference. Um, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. A little disappointed. <laughs> a little. This is a big disappointment. Obviously, it's unbelievable what Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are doing so far. And truly, that whole Brooklyn Nets team is playing at just another level. Um, but this was billed as, as a series that was going to be one of the best we've seen in, in the last couple of years. Two pretty strong teams with uh, stars across the board. And, and Milwaukee truly is just like, I don't know what is happening with them. They look so out of sync. Their offense cannot get going. They are not hunting out favorable matchups because there are some weak links in that Nets defensive system. Giannis is getting stifled by Blake Griffin, who has reinvigorated his career and turned into like uh, a less athletic Dennis Rodman, like just hustle plays. He's diving on the floor. He's, uh, getting in the way guys like it's truly remarkable what's happened to him after he didn't dunk <laughs> last season um, Quinn's got a new big three big four as soon as Harden's back it's it's unbelievable and and like LaMarcus Aldridge had to pull out he must be sitting at home just so unbelievably sad that he can't be a part of this team right now because they are operating on all cylinders. Joe Harris is consistently getting open shots, the most open shots he's ever had in his career, and he is just lights out. Uh, but I heard today 
on another podcast, Kevin Durant right now is shooting 55, 50, 91 splits. <laughs> and 90% of his three-point shots that he are, he's taking are contested. And he's hitting 50%. <laughs> it's, it must be nice to have half a foot on your average defender. It, it's true. And and what, it seems like whenever he gets the ball, it's a bucket. Like he's just so awesome and getting back to that level where he was at before the gruesome injury, of course, in Scotiabank arena that we recall uh, so vividly as a lot of eyeballs North of the border were on that game. Um, But he's back and he's showing everyone that he is, I don't know if you ever forgot, but he was going to probably take the the title as the best player in the game before that injury was going to have three peated on a, on titles and, um, was truly dominant on both ends of the floor. It's not just the scoring, but he was blocking Brooke Lopez, uh, the other night and, and rotating and staying in front of guys and just using his immense length to really be disruptive. And it's what they've needed from him in order to complete this defense because they need a little bit more of a rim protecting presence. Um, and Milwaukee has not been able to attack the pain at all, which is just frankly astounding to me that they can't do that, but uh, they need to come out with way more energy in game three. Otherwise this series is over because Brooklyn is just <laughs> in fuego. It's unbelievable. Damn. Uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on is like one of the reasons why they've been so in fuego. Obviously I talked about the drop coverage with Brooke Lopez, but um, taking out DeAndre Jordan and Nick Claxton and some of the traditional centers that Brooklyn is normally operated with and going with a Blake Griffin, going with a Bruce Brown in that big role. um, They are playing almost that Draymond type role where they're catching the ball in the short role from Kyrie from KD uh, and from Mike James and picking apart the defense because it becomes four on three uh, in terms of rotations. And Bruce Brown as a guard playing the four or five is a guy who sees the game at a different level. He's got the playmaking ability and he's just setting up guys. And of course, Blake Griffin also has that playmaking ability. And And those guys are really tearing apart Milwaukee's defense right now. But you can't really stop Brooklyn on offense. So it's really up to Milwaukee to make some adjustments on their offensive side of the ball in order to keep pace because the defense has been all right. It's just the offense has been terrible and they need Middleton. They need holiday to show up on that end of the floor and and they need Giannis to be more assertive in that first 45 minutes of the game. Like we talked about. Yeah, this was kind of supposed to be it for Milwaukee and through two doesn't seem like they've even put up a fight i I, i'm looking forward to our off-season content and doing a lot of team autopsies this could potentially be a huge one yeah and you wonder if Giannis he probably doesn't but if he regrets signing that biggest extension because they don't have a lot of moves to make and yeah uh, they're kind of stuck with this group for the next couple years they've made the moves and this is what you get like yep could be a middleton trade in the near future if they if this doesn't go better okay last series round out our 
NBA talk are the 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks, Philadelphia. Uh, everyone's jumping on them, of course. The overreactions, right, to game one, and, and it's all aboard the Hawks bandwagon. So much playmaking, uh, so much talent. Trey Young is, has reached a new level. He's reached kind of modern-day Steve Nash in terms of the playmaking, but also the three-point shooting. Um, and then Philly comes out and puts him in the grinder, and it was less Danny Green and more Ben Simmons and Matisse Thibel guarding Trey Young, and they managed to really hinder his ability to score at the, at the least, which is huge for them because he drives their offense completely. Uh, and Matisse Thibel and Ben Simmons took five total shots in the game. So if that shows you about how tough of a matchup Trey is, they really were locked in on him. And then, of course, Joel Embiid getting spoon-fed in the post over and over and over again, finishes with 40 points, looked easy for him. Um, he's truly locked in and, and it looks like the knee isn't hindering him. I still am worried because that report just even came out. But if we hadn't heard the report, then we would have never have known he was injured because he is just dominating Clint Capella right now. The big thing from this game, though, for me was the, the bench. <laughs> Atlanta's bench in game two outscored Philly's bench 32 to zero in the first half. Uh, not a single bucket from a guy off the bench for Philly. And then in the second half, uh, they got eight, eight. It was 12-8 in the third quarter, still favoring Atlanta in bench scoring. But Shake Milton uh, came off the bench and gave them a real spark in those minutes where the starters weren't on the floor. And um, he might be an X factor in this series because he is good, a good enough dribbler and, and penetrator and playmaker that they can actually use him to attack the Lou Williams, the Trey Young, the Kevin Herters, who are subpar defenders at best. But you're not really going to attack them with Danny Green or Matisse Thibel or Ben Simmons. Those aren't the guys who are going to do a ton of pick and roll um, creation from off the dribble and, and with their shot opening things up. But it, it could be Shake Milton doing so. Obviously, you don't want to put the car keys in his hand too much but it might be something good to mix up and at least make those guys who have been scoring a ton for Atlanta right now, make them play some defense. And uh, yeah, it was, it was nice to see shake have a, a little bit of run there and he hit a great buzzer beater at the end of that third quarter, but Philly establishing their physicality and dominance in game two. And I can see this trend moving forward into games three and four, but Atlanta is still in the series, right? They got a split. That's what you take coming home and, uh, we'll see if the, the switching venues changes anything for the Hawks. Uh, they're still in a good spot. Punch, counterpunch, adjust, adjust, adjust. Your move, Atlanta. Absolutely. All right. I think that wraps up our basketball. Yes, sir. Then we'll be right back. And we're back, Sports Next Door, to talk about another sport reaching crescendo and another game reaching crescendo last night. I talked about the Phoenix Suns um, having an excellent crowd and a ton of energy. And I saw that with the Colorado Avalanche last night in Denver uh, against the Vegas Golden Knights, a pivotal game five. And uh, it was a back and forth first period. Brandon Saad scores an absolute muffin at the end of that period that flurry, I think, he knew the clock was running out. So he's just trying to do a casual snag. And that way there's no rebound to end the period and just missed it. And it goes in. 
and it was un- an unbelievable goal, inexcusable. And then the second period, oh my gosh, it was an avalanche. <laughs> Terrible dad joke there, but they were all over the place. McKinnon, McCarr, uh, Rantanen, Comfer, Saad. They were just buzzing everywhere. All the control and the crowd was going banana lands. It was <laughs> absolutely awesome to watch. Uh, they finally get a goal. I think it was Jonas Donskoy. And, and I thought Colorado had it in the bag. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and Mark Stone was on, on the first thing I saw on my app. It was a great breakaway-ish type shot goal from him. And Vegas hanging in there. They're a team that has now seen, it's so ridiculous to say, but they have seen as much like playoff action as the Leafs have seen in the last 30 years. And they've been around for like four seasons. Um, and they're a team built on, it's almost like an, you take the Habs team and you press the upgrade button. That's the Vegas Golden Knights. Like it's a team built on system. Not a lot of like your A++ talent. Obviously they've got great talent with Patrick Stone, Flurry, the defensive core, of course, but not a lot of names that are going to be plastered on, on the front page of, of the NHL's promo package. And they just put in the, the dirty work. They continue to fight. They continue to believe in themselves. And uh, Colorado had made a great adjustment where they had the defense joining the rush almost every time they were entering, exiting the zone, um, which led to a lot of chances for them. But there were three instances where they did it. And in those three instances, those were the only three instances Vegas really needed. And they scored on those three times. Obviously, there were a bunch more that, could have been goals the other way. Could have been goals for Colorado. But uh, if you take risks like that, it's going to happen where you turn the puck over in the neutral zone. And, and that's how Vegas scored all three of their goals. And a huge, huge win for them to break the uh, the home winning streak. And now they have an opportunity to close it out at T-Mobile Arena in game six. Yeah, live by the odd man rush, die by the odd man rush for Colorado. And yeah, you respect it, it is a huge asset of theirs, especially uh, Makar. Like some of the highlights of him last night were absurd, the skating and stick work he did. But there were also highlights of Shea Theodore, like stripping him very effectively on those plays. Uh, this, obviously Colorado is a ridiculously talented team and they are going to score goals on you. But Vegas has done a pretty effective job of shutting down the top dogs of Colorado and making the supporting members like step up and throw their weight around while Vegas's top two lines have been all over. The March or so Tuck Carlson line has been absolute money this series. Uh, I, They'd won two goals last night. I think Tuck or Marsh or so is at four now. And then uh, Mark Stone stepping up big when it matters in overtime. Uh, Vegas is, it's crazy in how just one thing at a time, you just focus on the next period, the next goal. And from the Avs being up to nothing and it, seeming like how is Vegas going to get in this series to Vegas completely in the driver's seat now, as you said, going home with a chance to finish it off. And I, we talked a fair amount 
when we're talking about Colorado, I've said, I don't know if this team is ready, if they've been adversity shock tested. And I still maintain that. Um, I, I was not, I watched the third period. I didn't catch the overtime, but I wasn't surprised at all. It was very, it's been very reminiscent of their series against the stars where they have leads, they lose the leads. And then the momentum is just all the other team. And they, there seems to be a bit of a shock to their confidence system or something. Whereas once they blow this lead, they're kind of out of the game. And that's twice in this series now that Colorado's managed to come back and take it in two very pivotal moments. I mean, if they hadn't done that in game three, the series probably would have been over. Doing it in game five puts them in the driver's seat and... I know in your notes, you've got uh, Carolina as the next Leafs, but I want to steal that and point the finger at the Avs because here's this super talented team that's, I don't want to write them off. And even the Stars series after going down 3-1, they managed to push it to seven. So they're still very much in this series. You can't count out Nathan McKinnon and Rantanen to figure something out. But uh, if not, then... I think I point the finger at Colorado as the team with the second most bad juju in the league. It's definitely true, but the, the difference between the Leafs and Colorado is Nathan McKinnon is probably on the best value contract uh, in all of sports, <laughs> while uh, the Leafs have spent big on their top four guys. Uh, that's a big difference there. And um, it's interesting that you you mentioned that too. Is uh, we've talked about like the high-end skill forwards and also the stats that <laughs> Carey Price is the first double-digit uh, player to ever make it to the third round um, in this like new salary cap era, which is pretty crazy. Um, but it does kind of show, I, I'm starting to see a pattern here where the teams that have had a lot of success in recent years in the playoffs have that kind of number one center who is a great two-way presence. Of course, with Vegas, I'm talking about Mark Stone. Uh, and then last year, I guess you could call Kucherov and, and Sagan more of offensive-minded, but then I'm thinking Boston, Patrice Bergeron, St. Louis, Ryan O'Reilly, Washington, Nicholas Backstrom, right? Those are number one guys who aren't necessarily like prolific goal scorers. Obviously, Kucherov and Sagan are. Um, but they get the job done on both ends and they contribute positively on offense. And then they absolutely can shut down the opponent's top line on defense. And um, if you're looking to build out a team, uh, you might want to have your, your top guys focus a little bit more on that defensive end. And that way you feel good about throwing them out there against any matchup. And, and that's what Vegas, like they feel good about that right now because they know they can throw Pacioretty and, and, and stone and, and they can go and, shut down the top guys on Colorado's other line, but also can bring a little bit of offense themselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little mind blown by that double digit salary cap stat you just hit. That's crazy. Yeah. This series still feels far from over. I'm hoping for a great counterpunch from Colorado and a fantastic game seven, but we will see. We will. All right. Well, you, you did briefly mention it. Uh, the next series on our docket are the Hurricanes and the Lightning. 
Tampa Bay finishes them off in five games. I really thought this series was going to go deeper. Uh, And the reason I have Carolina as uh, basically an upgraded version of the Leafs, or at least a more successful recent version of the Leafs, is a lot of similar issues where, or not in terms of, well, they're up, they're up there in the salary cap, but they also have a lot of young talent that's still growing together. Um, and you're just kind of waiting for them to take that next step and they haven't done it yet. And now a couple uh, playoff runs where obviously making it to the second round is, is hugely successful. Sounds like a dream come true to me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think a lot of fans these last two years have been expecting more. Uh, and now getting bounced out by the lightning here. Carolina's facing a couple of tough decisions this offseason, primarily uh, the re-signing of Dougie Hamilton, who I think will be outside of the price range that they're willing or that they can afford with their current cap situation. And um, I think they still have to figure out the goaltending situation. You hope that Nedeljkovic can take another step forward in his development, but uh, Carolina feels in a similar situation to the Leafs where they're just looking for their young, skilled guys to take that next step. Gotcha. Yeah. And the Tampa Bay Lightning quietly advancing to the third round. I'm, they'll face either the Bruins or the Islanders, as we'll talk about next. But man, this team for sure, you in my opinion, is one of the top three in the NHL right now, along with the Avs and the Golden Knights. And I think just more playoff poise than either. You could argue the Golden Knights. But uh, I said at the start of the season, I'd see no reason why this team can't go back to back. And this series does nothing but bolster that opinion. Yeah, when you've when you've got the Vesna, most likely Vesna winner. You've got the most likely Norris winner. And then you've got last year's Hart Trophy winner who didn't play all season and is the freshest he's probably ever been in his career operating at 100%. Like this Tampa team is just so, 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 so good. It's truly unfair. And um, as it looks right now, they will get to meet, their high-powered team will get to meet the uh, slow, methodical vice that is the New York Islanders. As the Islanders lead 4-2 to two at the time of this podcast, halfway through the third period. Um, so very interesting to see what the outcome of this Game 6 will be. Uh, the series itself has been fairly back and forth between the Islanders and the Bruins. The Islanders get a huge, huge win uh, in Boston in Game 5. And it's, again, it's, I haven't watched a ton of this series because I don't like either team. And I think the Islanders hockey is just straight up boring, but you can't argue with the results. Lou Lamorello, what has won six playoff series since he left Toronto and um, Barry Trotz also has had the same amount of success since leaving Washington and both of those franchises sitting there going, do we make the right decision here? Yeah. And with the not quite the island of misfit toys, but not a A plus through and through talent wise roster, all the more impressive. Uh, yeah, love to know some of what they're doing, but if the games are so stripped of entertainment, maybe that wouldn't be a fun regular season to watch. Yeah, they, yeah. 
I don't, I don't have a lot to say about this series. I want to talk a little about the game five and the fine, but if you have any notes on the gameplay first. No, let's get right into this uh, officiating. Yeah, so the backstory, game five, a couple raw numbers. I think the Bruins had 44 shots on goal. The Islanders had 19. The Bruins had two power plays. The Islanders had four, off of which they got three power play goals. So after the game, Bruce Cassidy asked how he feels about the game, and he said something to the extent of, I think we were the better team. I don't think the result showed that, and then implied that there's something going on with the refing to be ignoring constant penalties and just implied, like, low-key implied some corruption, some bad officiating. It really seemed incredibly benign to me. Maybe this is because I'm coming from the world of MMA where a fighter doesn't like the stoppage the ref made and says he smelled like booze and cigarettes. But whatever the case, Bruce Cassidy does not like the ref in and the NHL does not like Bruce Cassidy's opinion and finds him $25,000 for it. And this is the second time in recent memory that the NHL has fined, levied out a fine because someone criticized their officials. And I really don't like this trend. I thought the comments about George Peros were very understandable given the context of the situation. And it was an opinion shared by like 80% of the internet and saying, we don't like this and don't think he should have his job was perfectly fair thing to say when you're in that situation. I think being upset about having the refing is pretty much par for the course in a playoff game you lose, especially with all the game management stuff that we know. And you had three power play goals scored against you. And yeah, it just, it feels incredibly stifling, authoritarian. Uh, I hate to throw out Orwellian, but it seems a little justified. And I really don't like this trend from the NHL of just finding anyone who criticizes officials making decisions. Yeah, I, I found I find it hilarious that they can find the coach five times more than the maximal, maximum penalty is for the players who make gargantuan amounts of money. Um, I respect the NHL for just backing their guys 100% no matter what, right? They... They really protect the refs in that regard. And if you're going to go one way or the other, they've stuck to their way and they've taken that direction. They don't waffle too much. So I at least respect that part of it. Um, and it's something that's consistent across all sports because once you have people outspokenly questioning refing, then the refs tend to insert themselves even more into games because they're human too. And they don't like being criticized in for their job. And that could end up just leading to more uh, poor calls and, and <laughs> choices made against that team who was complaining. But uh, in the end, like if you, if you want to air your grievances, uh, you can do so. Just be prepared to face a penalty. The NHL has made it very clear. I don't, I don't have much of a take on it. 
Uh, obviously, I think you should be able to say what you want. And as long as it's not directly attacking another human person, but more the way that the game is called, then I think that's fine. But the NHL has has planted their stake in the ground about this is the way that they've always done it. And this is the way they always will do it. Uh, and that's kind of something you just got to deal with. There's There's lots of other things that I would change first about the game before something like this. Yeah, it's it's an example of a bigger issue just in the way the NHL operates of being very set in its ways, operating behind closed doors, having that old school mentality. And if you don't like it, get out. And yeah, there's just something I really find disturbing about if you criticize us, we are going to fine you. You can't criticize us. That's just from like basic human communications, like the way we operate. But I understand it's peanuts at the level of money we're talking about, but that the impulse is when people who work for the NHL are criticized, like fines go out. The NHL doesn't want that. It, saying like, that's just how it is, is really, yeah, no, I hate that. And I want it to change. It won't, but don't like it. I mean, that's why we talk about it here, right? Maybe someone picks this up and says, you guys are right. Let's, let's change something. But uh, that will happen. The NHL is pretty tight knit and, and things are in a steel vault with those guys. Of course, a bunch of lawyers that know how to do their jobs very well. That's, I got nothing more to say about this really. Uh, I just want to, get to this next series very quickly in and out. Um, good job, Montreal. You have won the North division. Very exciting. Um, I saw the, the riots in downtown Montreal look like a just terrible time. Um, <laughs> and just bums me out even more. So Max, unless you have anything else to say on this, let's just good job, Montreal. Move on. <laughs> LA, LA, LA. And we're back again. UFC 263 is this weekend. Uh, Max, it's been a while since your last combat corner, but I know you're starting to dip your toes back in the water. And um, I'm sure there are lots of really exciting fights lined up this weekend. So why don't you tell me all about them? Yeah, this fight may be the perfect cure for a fan who's been looking for a little more name recognition or something to get excited about because there's so much on this card that even running through all these fights quickly, I don't have time to cover it all. But start with the main event. This not the best fight you can make in the middleweight division, at my, in my opinion, at this moment. I think Robert Whitaker is the number one contender. But on short notice or on the timeline, Israel Adesanya and the UFC wanted Marvin Vittori is the guy who was ready to step up. And so he will get his shot in a rematch against Israel Adesanya. Let's talk about what makes this fight interesting. It's a rematch, as I said, and Marvin Vittori is really the only guy at middleweight who's managed to control Adesanya for any amount of time on the ground. He's coming off a performance where he spent most of the fight doing just that and showing off his wrestling and being coasting to a 
very dominant victory. So that's kind of the question. And in addition, Adesanya, as beatable as he has ever looked for the first time in his UFC career, he'll be fighting, coming off a loss. So we've got a fighter who just had some loss in a particular way. We have a fighter who is capable of fighting in that particular style. The question is, can the square peg fit into a square hole or is it a round hole? Um, can Marvin Vittori do more or less what Jan Blahovic did against Izzy? I don't think so. And I, to talk a little more about that Jan fight, it, it took Jan having these, a striking IQ and ability close to Izzy's I, I wouldn't say it was better in that like pound for pound you put them in the same body and Jan wins but that's just not how fighting works everyone has a different body um, Jan having a reach that Izzy wasn't as used to having a lot more power behind his shots and was able to maximize both those things to be slightly ahead in the striking staying a bit busier with the jabs, I don't see Vittori being able to keep the tempo and the pace at like this very low volume striking affair where he can actually outstrike Izzy. That just, it, it was the power of Blahovic and the striking experience. Vittori is not going to have either of those things. And then it, that style of striking is what let Jan set up the takedowns. They all came in off strikes and some really beautiful fake step in, in momentum, like set up a trip. And then once he got on top, sure. If, if Vittori manages it to take it to the ground, I'm sure he can hold Izzy there, but I don't see it. Like I just... I don't see him having the striking success that was a prerequisite for Jan to outgrapple Izzy. I I think this is just an opportunity for Izzy to have like a star raising performance. He already is a star. This is just a chance to say, hey, remember this guy? I, I beat him a couple of years ago in a split decision. One judge was silly. Um, now I'm going to raise the bar and do that same thing, but better to stop this guy. Um, I, I can see this going kind of similar to the Costa fight where Vittori wants to be close and he wants to threaten, but just is he's such a snake charmer and so hard to stand in front of and he'll make you pay when you stand there and eventually find the shot. Other fights on this card that look fun. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the co-main. That requires a level of research I didn't get into, but yes, that will be a banger. The really interesting one is Edwards versus Diaz. Uh, this fight being rescheduled from last month, but will be, I think, the first like five-round non-main event on a pay-per-view ever, and I'm absolutely here for it. Like give these guys who are fun to watch over five rounds, five rounds to make something fun happen. And 
this should just be absolute carnage from Leon Edwards that I, after like what happened to Diaz at the hands of Mass Vidal and how good Edwards has looked every time he's stepped into the octagon. The only question I really have about this fight is how long before Nate Diaz starts bleeding, how much is he going to bleed, and how chill is the doctor in whose cage side going to be with the bleeding. I am so certain about this one. Like I almost am second-guessing it, but I think there's just a difference in like the hunger, the drive, the chip on the shoulder of Leon Edwards that's sending him to the gym every day, all the time, striving to be the best. And Nate Diaz, who's like a real bad motherfucker, but not that same type of professional sport-specific athlete. Uh, Having said that, Diaz was capable of pulling off a lot more than expected against Pettis. And you haven't really seen anyone against Edwards with that no quit, keep moving forward style. And it's not actually a bad warm up if you're going to be going up against Kamar Usman. So hopefully Diaz tests Edward, gives him some adversity, doesn't stop moving forward, puts him against the clinch, makes him uncomfortable, and gives Edward something to work through. But, uh, I'd be very shocked if this goes all five rounds without Edwards' elbows and knees just like painting Diaz's face red. Speaking of Leon Edwards, his last opponent, Bilal Muhammad, will also be stepping into the cage, which must be a bit of a bitter feeling for him since that fight ended by eye poke. But he'll be going up against the timeless Damien Maya. He must be like 43 or something at this point, man. And there's no easy matchups at welterweight, but for Damian Maya, guys who can wrestle really well and strike good enough are the worst because he's going to have a hell of a time trying to take them down. And on the feet, he's going to get into trouble. And that's exactly what Bilal Muhammad is. He has pretty solid wrestling for welterweight, which means like, near world class anywhere else so i don't think damien's gonna have any easy ways to get this to the mat and is really gonna have to struggle and work and he just doesn't have the athleticism it has to be perfect technique at his age so unless he can find like a nice backpack standing up uh, and muhammad also has really solid stand-up like yeah this could be it for maya but People have said that many times, and he's proven them wrong many times, so it's definitely an interesting matchup. Maybe the one I have the most personal investment in on the card is Paul Craig versus Jamal Hill. Paul Craig, the bear Jew, just like, I love this guy so much out of Scotland. Um, Just like really awesome jujitsu fighter who just it seems like a meme more than anything else the way he fights and but he just doesn't give up on his submissions attacks them relentlessly and just finds a way to make it happen so often um his career has consisted of doing that and getting knocked out by guys with real power when he tries stupid shit on the feet and that his lack of athleticism uh will make him suffer for and jamal hill is the type of guy who's the type of fighter who's knocked him out and 
I'd say he's actually better than the other guys who have knocked him out. Uh, that last performance against Ovin St. Preux was showed he had not only has power, but he has patience. So it's not going to be a matter for Paul Craig, like against uh, Kennedy Nizaku, where he just kind of took a beating, let him gas out, and then set the triangle. Jamal Hill is going to be deadly for all three rounds, and it's only going to take one mistake from Craig. But he's shown some interesting things on the feet. And I, he had a knockout against a Mexican fighter, I think. I can't remember the dude's name, but he also really he beat Shogun Hua on the feet, who is admittedly old, but still a really respectable stand-up fighter that Paul Craig was able to outstrike. So is Paul Craig making his way to a title shot is like one of my favorite timelines possible. And Jamal Hill is an opponent Craig has not been able to overcome in the past that he needs to do so if that reality is going to have even a pipe dream of success. So I'm hoping to see some more evolution from Craig, continued progress on the feet. He's had a long time to prepare for this matchup. I think it was supposed to originally happen in March. So kind of hopeful, kind of scared, should be interesting. Then the last fight I've got highlighted here is Drew Dober versus Brad Riddell. Love my lightweights, best division. And this fight is just going to be so much fun. Both absolute killers on the feet. Um, Brad Riddell coming from a kickboxing background with City Kickboxing, Dan Hooker, Israel Adesanya, Eugene Behrman, those kind of all right striking guys. He's looked really good so far in the UFC. Drew Dober has looked really good against everyone not named Islam Makashev, but hey, who can't say that? Uh, and yeah, just two guys who are really talented. Out, I don't know if Dober's got a number next to his name right now or not, but he'd be just on the fringes either way. Just two really talented guys in a really awesome deep division who both love to strike. So awesome matchmaking totally deserves its place as the prelim headliner and cannot wait for it. Uh, lastly, I just wanted to shout out that Hakim Dawadu, our Canadian, will be fighting on the card as well. I think his opponent undefeated so far in the UFC, so uh, not the easiest test, but I haven't seen Hakim in the cage for a while now, so hope that there's something promising to talk about from him on Sunday. That's all for this combat corner. We're going to wrap up, wrap it up, take a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back, Sports Next Door, me, Max, with me, Owen, and it's time for some football fan cave. I think I'm going to get in on this one a little, and we're going to talk about something we have absolutely no idea, so only like five percent different from the rest of the podcast you probably won't even notice <laughs> yeah i uh i think we're gonna have some fun with this one uh, of course the euro cup set to kick off on friday and the copa america which is not as big as the euro but still really really high class world-class football of course that's the south american championship uh happening starting this weekend as well um, the Euro gets a lot more mainstream attention here in North America. Uh, and so that is the, that is the tournament we are going to preview. Um, 
high, high level football. It's probably the second most prestigious tournament besides the World Cup itself. Um, and I thought we'd have some fun here because I know a bit. I know the top guys, uh, and I can confidently say that Max knows very little about what is going on in the uh, world football scene. So we're going to have a quick exercise where I read off the groups, and Max is going to pick his country first. Um, that way he has a one in four shot of, of picking a top team. And then I will try and come in and pick the second place team in the group. And uh, how the Euro works is it is the top two teams from each of the six groups advance and then four of the top third place teams advance into the knockout stage. But we won't even get that far because that's way too many picks to make. So Max, group A, we have Italy, Switzerland, Turkey, and Wales. Who's number one? Italy. All right. And I'm going Switzerland, number two, uh, with uh, Shakiri, the left-footed striker maestro. Uh, so that is the – those are the two teams going through. We can just – we don't have to run, play the games anymore. We are the uh, – we see the future. All right, Group B, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, and Russia. I know this one. It's Belgium. <laughs> I'm going with Denmark as uh, as the other team. So Belgium and Be Denmark. So far, uh, so good. We're picking alphabetical order in these two groups so far. Uh, group C, we have Austria, Netherlands, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. North Macedonia. Learning some geography as well as soccer. <laughs> uh, Netherlands. Oh, man. I don't even, I guess... Ukraine, I'm gonna pick here. This seems wow, this is a really weak group compared to um, the uh, group F, which we'll get to later. Uh, even this next group is much stronger Croatia, Czech Republic, England, and Scotland. Yep, Scotland, we're gonna upset England. I know it. Oh, that's a big pick, and I think that's a fun one. That I don't know if the last two times, the last time these two teams have played in a uh, high-level international tournament, but England-Scotland. That'll just be fun for the, yeah. the fans in the stands and the general hatred between the two clubs. Um, for, like, the crowd fights as well. Yeah, that will be great. Uh, I'm going to go England here because I think they're far and away favored in this group. Um, and then I would give a quick shout-out to Croatia. Uh, I think they have a chance to be a team that, that can make some noise as maybe a, a second- or third-place finisher. Those last few picks felt too serious. I had to pick it up. <laughs> Scotland. All right. Uh, group E, Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Sweden. Back to serious Spain. Sweet. Uh, I think I'm going to go Sweden. Now, is Poland would be Lewandowski, so he's going to score a ton of goals, and maybe Poland can squeak into that third-place spot, uh, but I have to go Sweden. Um as the second place team in this group. And then finally, the group that you've all been waiting for, the group of death, France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. Jesus. Who makes these? I think it's random draw. <laughs> wow. Ah. Uh... Damn, Let, let's go Portugal, the defending champs. Yeah, 
Uh, and I'm going to go France, uh, the defending World Cup champs um, and, and potential golden boot winner uh, in, well, two actually in, in Killian or yeah, Killian Mbappe and then uh, N'Golo Kante, um, two studs uh, for the French side. I, I think I actually am going to pick them to win this tournament. I think whoever is the top seed out of this group has a really great shot just given some of the weaknesses of the, of the other groups. So if you can get out of this group with, with the, the most points, then you're lined up well to go a long way in this tournament. I would just give a shout out. I think Belgium's got a great shot. Uh, I would give England a solid shot, but they just always seem to choke in these international competitions. Um, Spain, you could see with a revamp squad, but I really think France, Germany, Portugal are, are the top three teams and, and they all get pitted against each other. One of them could be out in the group stage. So definitely the group to watch uh, for the next couple of weeks as we kick off the Euro Cup. Really looking forward to it. Um, and I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, all the footy we got? Uh, that's all of the footy we've got, but we've got some American football on, do- on the docket. Thank you for playing along with me, Max. I wanted to just do two really, really, really quick football notes. Uh, Julio Jones, I forgot to mention it on Sunday. It did happen on Sunday. Traded to the Tennessee Titans. Um, it'll be fun. They have a lot of size with Julio Jones, A.J. Brown, and then Derrick Henry in the backfield. Should be a high-powered offense. Um, and it's a trade they make to try and leapfrog themselves into another uh, AFC South title. Um, and we'll see how that turns out. I, I don't know how much it moves the needle for them in terms of Super Bowl contention, but definitely a fun one to see Julio on the move. And, and we'll see if Kyle Pitts, the uh, fourth overall pick for the Falcons, can go in there and, and help replace some of the production they'll lose by uh, losing their star wide receiver to the trade. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on, Aaron Rodgers, uh, first time in his career, does not show up to the Packers mandatory mini camp. Um, so the saga continues and I don't know, like he won the MVP last year and he might not play this season. So, uh, definitely something that has to be monitored because if he ends up moving, it completely changes the potential scope of what the NFL season looks like. Um, and definitely something to keep our eyes on, but, uh, I think he's being a bit of a baby, (laughs) but that's, that's it for me. Uh, Max, I know you got some French Open notes to get to. Yeah, it's been a fun week, man. Um, these last two days, uh, I've just got the men's side of the draw to talk about, but you finally get top 10 players in the world matched up against each other, and it's just so much fun to watch. Yesterday, we had uh, Tsitsipas playing against Medvedev. I guess I'd learned recently there's a bit of a rivalry there, which wasn't too apparent. Uh, to me during the city pass gets through in straight sets but just the tennis was so much fun to watch i mean like at at that level if you're consistent top 10 in the world you can just do it all your service game is gonna bail you out of trouble you're not gonna have any weekend weaknesses you can like pound the forehands you have a backhand almost as deadly you have a slice a drop shot you're at the net play is going to be solid and there's just no holes that can be exploited and it's a matter of how 
those styles match up against each other. And on the clay court, it seems like Tsitsipas just a step ahead of Medvedev. He uh, worked his way into it throughout, but just Tsitsipas gets out to an early lead and then in the big moments uh, comes up clutch. I don't know if you saw the match point on that. No. Medvedev went for a underhand. <laughs> it was pretty bold move. Cotton didn't work out. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and so that set up today's tennis great. I caught uh, Rafael Nadal versus Argentina's Schwartzman, first name I don't know. Diego, was... I believe. Pardon? Diego. Diego. There we go. Diego. So just setting up this clip we're we're getting that good good shit that rafa novak matchup um the best matchup in tennis because both won their matches today but rafael nadal coming through against diego schwartzman in what was also a very fun match that showed the level of two top 10 players in the world uh, Schwartzman took the first set off Nadal that anyone has taken off him in this 2021 French Open. And it was real back and forth at first. Uh, Nadal takes the first one, Schwartzman takes the second. And then Schwartzman came out ahead in the third. It was just this punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch, where both had broken each other's serve. Neither had like a particularly deadly impossible to beat serve but a good enough one to win most of the time but nothing unbreakable and it set up this rhythm where someone would get a break someone would break right back someone would get a break ride the momentum and you it was just going back and forth until Nadal dug in somewhere in that third set after going down to nothing and I've been thinking all podcast about this and not really sure where to sneak it in, like talking about the Avs struggling, talking about uh, with basketball, how runs go. But just like the most remarkable thing about tennis is just the mental perseverance and ability to weather it and have that constant like momentum shifting in you, around you, against you, and to stay consistent and believe in yourself. And that's... You could tell that's what won it for Rafa today. And he he gives, he takes, he gets some, he gives it back and just stays unfazed, unflapped onto the next point and will just not break first. And Schwartzman had to be really good to get any points off Rafa. I, there's not going to be anything easy there. A defensive player, and he had to be a bit more offensive than I think he's normally comfortable with to earn his points, which was good enough for a while, but then eventually just couldn't keep up, and Rafa ran away with it in the end. Uh, he won't, took the fourth set 6 nothing. I think he won eight games straight and 24 of 29 points in those six games in the fourth set. So a bludgeoning at the end from Rafa on Djokovic's side, a very different game where he had all the success early and then it got really tight down the stretch. Uh, if anyone listening is interested on our website, all my notes throughout the game are up. I'm looking at them right now. It's way too long for me to bore with for the whole thing, but um, Matteo Berrettini, man, just, this like six foot five Italian top 10 in the world, um, deadly serve. I 
almost never saw him going under 200 kilometers an hour on his first serve. His second serves were coming in around like 175, which was Djokovic's average first serve on plenty. And then his forehand, like just as hard, it felt like watching. And those two things really were good enough to really push a perfect, near perfect Djokovic. I mean, early Djokovic was able to kind of get enough of a handle on the serve where he was finding a couple breaks in the first two sets. I think he went 6-3 and 6-2. It felt like he had a read. He was guessing right, diving to the right side and doing a really effective job of pushing the returns into the corner deep so that Berrettini couldn't get that killer forehand off a serve that, quite frankly, he's probably not used to being returned at that rate. And then it got really tight in the third set. Berrettini locked in on his serve. Um, tons of credit to Djokovic for his serve, actually, as well. His serve was more effective than Berrettini, despite being consistently slower. He would just... Berrettini was serving hard and fast, but it was coming up sometimes and giving Djokovic a chance. A lot of Djokovic's serves were low. Uh, the high ones then would be that much more effective because Berrettini was expecting low. He'd mix spin in there. A lot of them were clocking between 150, 175. He had that fastball in his pocket if he, he wanted to. Uh, as it especially was noteworthy in the first game. Uh, Berrettini got three break points all match, and all three of them came in that first set, and Djokovic was perfect, saving them all. His serve was huge in that. Uh, on to the third set, it went to a tie break. It seemed like Djokovic had it. He was serving up 5-4 with two serves to go. He made two unforced errors. So basically gave the shootout to Berrettini with his serve, putting him up 6-5. Uh, and then really didn't know what way the momentum was going to go in the fourth set. Similar situation building where like just from the third set onwards, both guys were so perfect on their serve. Um, I forgot to mention Djokovic made five unforced errors in the entire third set that went to tie break. And two of them were the ones that lost him the mat. Like how crazy is that? He made three unforced errors, was serving like near perfectly and it still went to a tie break and he still lost that set. Uh, Yeah, and then the fourth set, Djokovic got real emotional towards the end. Uh, he was up 6-5. Berrettini was serving for the set. I think the mental pressure got to him a little. He made two unforced errors. That was good enough to give Djokovic an opportunity. He didn't get his first match point because Berrettini, with a fantastic serve, goes into deuce, doesn't get the second match point that he forces because Berrettini had an unanswerable forehand showed a lot of emotion after that, earned himself another match point and just held smart, held dangerous in the rally and finally got it. And you could just tell from, I don't see Djokovic that emotional that often, but it was such a fantastic match to watch uh, because it was a matter of Djokovic looking so damn perfect and Berrettini still really managed to threaten him with just unanswerable. I think I wrote at the front of the website it was a flawless performance meeting like unreturnable shots and 
it was a tennis clinic from Djokovic, which was so entertaining to watch. And it sets up the best matchup in tennis between these two who have all the shot making ability and even more importantly, all the mental confidence, perseverance, integrity that you know neither guy's going to quit, give up on themselves. It doesn't matter what the score is going to be. They're going to play their best tennis every point, which happens to be pretty damn good tennis. And I'm very excited for it. Yes, I am as well. And then who will be dubbed uh, the king of clay for this year? Uh, we shall find out. It's going yeah. to be awesome. Poor Djokovic, man. He's been to 11 French Open semifinals and no one's ever going to talk about it because Rafa's been to 14. Yeah. But yeah, and Tsitsipas, Medvedev will play each other and finals matchup will be determined that way. A Rafa Sitsipas matchup would probably be the best you could hope for after uh, Sitsipas has looked really good this tournament, I guess just against a tougher strength of competition than uh, Zverev has dealt with. And obviously you want to see the king of clay in the finals, but with these four guys, you can't go wrong. And I'm really excited for the semis and finals. I think they'll kick off Friday and tomorrow, so Thursday the 10th, we've got the women's semis. See if I, uh, Sakari's been a huge upsurge and we've got our Slovenian who upset Bianca in the first round. So those are the two I'm hoping to see in the finals there. Yep, it's going to be an awesome action-packed weekend with the Euro, with the French Open, with the basketball, with the hockey. Obviously, baseball still running. Didn't have any notes today. Um, yeah, a lot going on. And just soak it in. Go to a patio if it's open where you are. Uh, enjoy the game. I certainly can't wait to. Um, and that's going to do it for this one. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Really appreciate each and every one of you. Um, and continue to try and share the pod and, and share the YouTube videos. It's It's been a blast so far, and, and we're going to keep it going. Sports Next Door signing out.